1: No purchase necessary, void, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website
0: for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 294th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today we are remembering the unusual life and colorful career of Peter Fonda, the American actor, writer, and director who was the son and brother of screen legends Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda, respectively. He died today of lung cancer at the age of 79. Peter Fonda, of course, made his own name as a writer and star of the 1969 counterculture classic Easy Rider, in which he, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson played motorcyclists on a trip of more than one kind. He subsequently garnered a Best Actor Oscar nomination for the 1997 film Yuli's Gold, and, as you'll hear in this conversation that he and I recorded at the TCM Classic Film Festival on March 27th, 2015, just a few months before this podcast was established, he was a smart, funny, and charming guy who will be missed. To begin with, I have to ask you, because I know a part of this, a big part of this, uh, your involvement this year is paying tribute to your father. Yes. Fonda. Um So... Even though it's a very open-ended question, I'm curious, what what was it like growing up as the son of Henry Fonda?
1: My normal response yeah. to that used to be, yeah. did you ever see Fort Apache? <laughs> did you? I did, of course. And you know who yes. Colonel Thursday was? Yes. Dad. Wow. wow. That was my normal way of seeing it. He yeah. was much nicer than that, but I like to say that because he was so stern, and we thought he was angry at us, but he really wasn't. He just did not know how to be... Uh, he didn't know how to, to do the things of a father. It, it, it frightened him. It had, took me a long time
0: to figure that out. But Had he, I know he grew up in the Midwest, and that inherently most people from the Midwest are a little more reserved, but did he have uh, issues with his own father? Do you know what, what, was, uh, what was it that made him that way?
1: You know, I don't know about issues with his dad. No, of course, I use the word problem. Mm-hmm. I'm an older person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just know that there was... The Christian Science in the background of the parents, so if there's anything wrong, it's got to be wrong with you and God. It can't be something wrong with your body. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And that was a, a disastrous thing coming in 1940. My entrance. <laughs> my sister came in, in December of 37, but my entrance was in 1940. And and um, there wasn't a lot of talking. That was just the way. I, I think that was not abnormal. I think that was probably very normal for that particular time and, and parents in those days. But my dad was particularly um, sensitive and feeling
0: not inadequate, but didn't know how to proceed as a dad. Now, even for, even if he had been the most outgoing, gregarious guy, I would still be curious to know how, what, what is the secret sauce that they put in your family's food that would produce two great actors but what i, I really wonder that yeah. when it's not like he was sitting down and having long conversations uh expanding on his you know expounding upon his wisdom and so what is your theory of how this happened that you and, and jane are both uh followed in his footsteps
1: well i mean i know i did i can't speak for jane yeah. uh, though i watched her do it before i did mm-hmm. uh i never thought about following in his footsteps once I learned what he did, it was interesting. I also liked to perform, and I liked it more and more. I I, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to make people laugh, and I wanted to make people interested in what I said because I was such a skinny kid, and, and my dad, see I was almost 10 pounds when I was born, and my dad, I think he was shooting, um, the return of Frank James, uh, I'm not positive, but he went hooping and hollering about whatever set he was on. I've got a fullback for a son. Well, as I was almost 10 pounds when I was 10 years old, I was a failure going out the door on that, and he, I felt that he was always angry at me because I couldn't put on weight. So when I found Pot, and it made me eat the entire menu at the Carlton Towers in London while I was making a movie. I thought,
0: this is great. That's, that was That's how I could stick on some meat, just have, smoke a joint before meals. <laughs> is that really what uh, initially turned you on to pot? Like, how did you first uh, experience it? What led to the first uh, introduction? Because it certainly wasn't happening in the Fonda household, right? No, not at all. Yeah. Um, I, I figured
1: it out. I, I had a wonderful stepmother who would tell jokes, my first stepmother. Who would tell jokes, and she would tell jokes about, she called it T, which is one of its its names. And, of course, it it went right over my head. (laughs) But it was Jim Mitchum. I love this part. (laughs) We were in London shooting Carl Foreman's The Victors. Mm -hmm. And um, Jim said to me one day, and we'd all lived in different spots around London, and we all decided this is not working. So we came to this one hotel that had good food hard to find in those days <laughs> in England that wasn't boiled. And um, Mitch uh, on the set said, oh, look, I, I, I've I, got some really, really great bomb, and uh, you want some? I had no idea. But the way he said it, of course I'm going to want, I don't, <laughs> even if I have to throw it away after, of course I'm going to want some. Mm-hmm. It's really great, you bet. And so I, he said, well, call me when you get back to the hotel. And I did, and he said, Uh, Come on downstairs and just knock on the door. And I did. I went down to where he was in there, and I hear people behind the door. I knocked, and he came out. He kind of closed the door partially behind him as he handed me this rolled-up envelope. And he said, now, you've done this before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just never heard it called bong. I have no idea what it is because it's in an envelope. Mm -hmm. He said, well, don't smoke it all at once. Oh, I'm going to smoke this stuff. Okay. (laughs) I got upstairs, and my bong. Um, what does that mean? It's an African word for it. Says my, my wife says, what does that mean? I said, do you want to, I don't want to try any. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to try some. And I had, because I, I knew something was going to happen. I had had a little pipe that I bought, like a souvenir pipe, yeah, yeah. small, one of those that long corn cob pipes. <laughs> that was how I was going to do this stuff. And, uh, I took a couple of hits of that and no problem. No turning back. Well, <laughs> then my wife said to a, um, can I try something? Yeah, absolutely. Here, you know, just do this because I knew all this stuff from the the jokes that my stepmother told me, like sipping a hot soup. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I was doing, and she started coughing her lungs out all over the room, you know, and I was just getting really ripped. I ended up in. Getting on the phone and ordering everything I could on the menu. <laughs> Got in bed when it was being delivered. I had the, the covers up near my nose, <laughs> laughing my ass off. Can you say that? Yeah. Say whatever you print. want.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, and, you know, she was so disgusted because she didn't get loaded. I did. <laughs> and I ate everything. I ate the whole room. I love I started it. eating the sheets. Now, now, let me ask. Was that,
0: in some ways, driven? I know you're saying, you know, you... Uh, at that probably that first incident was uh, instance I should say was just uh uh trying it because Mitchum made it sound cool right then you said maybe to put on weight but ultimately deep down was this sort of a way of rebelling against Henry Fonda to be getting into drugs to be riding motorcycles to be acting even in different kinds of movies than he ever would have
1: uh, no, not at, all. Not at um, all, because I started on the stage and he watched me work on stage, okay. uh, and uh, so I wasn't trying to make a statement about my dad. In fact, I didn't. It was a full year when I would ever try that out again, but I did remember, man, I just ate everything <laughs> in the hotel and that can help me put the weight on. Mm-hmm. So although that didn't follow, I didn't drop down the vabid pit of no return from the evil weed. Uh, and we now know that it's really medically cool and it can help people with pain. It does all this other mm-hmm. stuff. But of course, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of people who call Huey on that, just like they do climate change. Yeah, right. Or the world is flat. There's (laughs) there's still people that
0: believe in that. Oh, I know. Some of them are running for president, which is scary. Oh, my God. (laughs) um, But anyway, uh, so when you were growing up and thinking about being, well, even maybe before you were thinking about being an actor, did you watch your dad's films with him or apart from him? And did you take anything away if you did? Like, were you watching... Henry Fonda movies as a kid?
1: I, I, my, the first Henry Fonda film I saw was Chad Hanna. And, of course, this fellow's name was Chad Hanna. I was such a naive person. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was five, mm-hmm. and he made it quite a few years earlier. I mean, we went to, to uh, 20th Century Fox to see the show, and um, I didn't know anything, uh, movies. I knew what we showed at home, and that was it. And he was never in the movies because he was operating the camera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So this is Chad Hannah. God, he looks like Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie goes on, and, and uh, well, Dad's fighting in the Pacific War, but and, you know, Chad's run away with Linda Darnell and the circus. That's pretty far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to process this, and suddenly it occurred to me that it was him because it sounded so much like him, but nobody was telling me. Typical of the family for so long, (laughs) the silence. And he was about to enter, he'd run away with the circus and Linda Darnell in this film, and his name was Chad Hanna, and Chad went in to clean out the lion's cage. What Chad didn't see, but us in the theater could see, the lion was in the cage. Mm -hmm and I didn't want that to happen. I didn't know the difference between real life and film. Mm -hmm. I'm down there beating, Daddy, 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 there's the lions in there. (laughs) And my mother had to take me out of the room and say, that's not your father, that's Chad Hanna. Mm -hmm. It looks like your father, but it's not your father, because how you explain to a four- or five-year-old the intricacies of playing (laughs) different characters, you don't. And with that new news, I went back in and watched the rest of the film. So, of course, I went home, and I went looking around because... Boy, Chad looked like my dad, <laughs> and I went looking. I saw pictures of us all together, but I couldn't find Chad. <laughs> it looks a lot like my dad, but it wasn't. And uh, my dad came home on the only leave that he had. He went down to the school, which was out in Brentwood, to pick us up. I didn't know, as I was this little kid coming out. I was four, mm-hmm. five years old, and uh, I was walking down the the driveway to the cars, and there was the family. Buick limousine. It was this big old 38 Buick limousine, and out stepped Chad Hanna. I beat the feet. I went running and hid in bushes, and I was skinny enough to get inside the bush where they couldn't reach me. I was not going to get in the car with Chad Hanna, wow. who was so foolish, he'd get in the chair without checking if the line was there. That's great. That's and so, great. without being able to explain that
0: to my dad, he wondered,
1: what's wrong with my son? I'd say hi, Peter, right. and he ran.
0: <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Uh, when did you know that you yourself wanted to pursue acting, and how did you wind up in Omaha, which is, isn't that where he was from? So, how did, so take us through that. Well,
1: of, co- of course, um, in schools, we had to do school plays, and I liked that. Mm-hmm. So, that was my first. But before school, uh, the Hayward children, Leland and Margaret Hayward and, and Maggie Hayward, Maggie Sullivan knew my dad when he first moved east, and they were first married, first time either of them were married. So there was this bond, so to speak. Uh, and the three Hayward children were like my sisters and brother. And we'd all do things together, and eventually we'd put on plays, mm-hmm. like all kids do. You know, it wasn't Mickey Rooney say let's make a show <laughs> in the backyard. But it was just about that. And I created all the plays, and I always played the banker or the miser, <laughs> whatever it was I did. I don't know why that was <laughs> in my brain so early right. in life. Right. Uh, and so we did all of that. And, and I would, was reminded that, about that by Brooke Hayward, who said, yeah, I used to do all the writing. I said, I don't think I wrote. No, you would say, OK, you do this, you do that, I'm going to do this, uh-huh. and then we'll do that, and we'll talk about this. And so early on, I was into performing. And even if it was just for the nurses the governors mm-hmm. or whatever, it was for the family. Mm-hmm. It was there. And I liked it so much that I continued on in school. And then uh, I continued on in, in grade school. I went to a boarding school in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. the oldest one in the United States. And, which one's uh, that? It's called the Fay School. Oh, yeah. Uh- it's in uh, Southboro, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And it was a prep school for uh, St. Mark's, which was a prep school for mm-hmm. college. And... Um, I did a couple of plays. One was The Pirates of Penzance. Uh-huh. And wouldn't you know, because it was an all-boys boarding school, some of the boys had to pay, play Fair Young Maidens. <laughs> and I was one. Wow. And it was so bloody embarrassing. <laughs> and I never wanted to play another Fair Young Maiden again. So I wrote my own play mm-hmm. at 13 called Stalag 17 and a Half. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about all of us trying to get out of school, trying to get gum into school, read comic books, and all the stuff we weren't That's allowed to do. Right.
0: That's great.
1: And, and no explosives. So right. we're, I did my explosives by having a guy behind this one window that we had found in the, in the little theater thing, which had... Flats. They were hand painted. It was really cheesy, but we didn't know. Right. And outside there had this guy slapping the erasers together. They had a bucket of razors from the school boards, the school rooms, and uh, somebody else with a big piece of <laughs> flapping, so there'd be puffs of white chalk coming through the window. That means we were
0: successful in building the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and how does this? How do you end up first of all in Omaha, and then at just 21, I think, on Broadway? How does that? How did those two uh, big steps happen?
1: Well, I was very fortunate, in fact, to go to Omaha. Some very bad stuff happened to me uh, in my prep school, which was uh, Westminster in Simsbury, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And I finally was allowed to leave, with all of my credits, the, the school. And I was sent out to Omaha because my father was in Europe and my sister was in Vassar, and there was nothing that could be done. So... We didn't want Petey Boy to be in New York City alone. <laughs> I loved the idea myself, <laughs> but I didn't think I was so crazed. Right. I had no idea, and uh, I went out and I stayed with my aunt, and my uncle, my sister's fa- my my father's sister mm-hmm. and uh, her husband, Jack Peacock, and uh, I lived with them. I I st- I didn't know about school. They didn't they they we were sure that I was thrown out. They had no idea what had gone down because I couldn't talk about it without just coming in and uh-huh. um, And my, my aunt said to me one day, you know, Peter, you're going to have to go back to school. I said, no, I'm not. Well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm not going back to high school. I am not going back to that school. Well, but you have to. I said, I don't know. I'm 17. Maybe somebody has some call over me, but I don't want to do that. It was too bad for me. It, it, it almost destroyed me. And she said, well, I want you to, to go out to the university. It was the University of Omaha, and it was a municipal college that ranked number five in the country of municipal colleges. Wow. And she had a friend, and that was the dean of liberal arts, Dr. William Thompson, who was a practicing psychologist, not only a dean of the school. and. He she said, "I want you to go out and take these tests because I want you to find out uh, what you you're good at, what you had uh, what you're adaptive at. Because I just don't want you going and starting to pump gas." And I couldn't argue with that logic, so I went to take these tests, and they were the stupidest mm-hmm. test you can imagine. And um, I it was a week of testing, in the morning and in the afternoon, and. It all turned out that it, they found out that my IQ was, extro- was above 170, we will just say that. And uh, that I had capabilities of knowledge and, and just gleaning things and using logic to get through stuff. And, and it, it gave me, well, they gave me three tests. It was the last three things that I had to do in this testing period, and they were multiple choice tests and uh they had cut the tops off the test I, n- I never knew each day that i was going out there whether i'd be trying to put pegs in holes uh, uh being timed to how quickly i could define the word cat what are they getting? <laughs> oh I, I can say that oh, thank you. I yeah. can't get um you know define cat mm-hmm. uh, so i gave them the latin felis catus. <laughs> i can't do that what do you mean i can't you didn't say that. i couldn't do that that's the <laughs> quickest way for me to define cat you're on the stopwatch ma'am. Right. anyway uh, the last three tests I did were multiple choice tests, and I did not know what they were, but I cruised through the first one in about 45 minutes. Because what it does, it gives you A, B, C, D, E, or none of the above, all of the above. Very few times is it none of above, all of the above. And I had already learned from English sentence writing how to break down a sentence. Mm-hmm. Where is the key word? So the question is there. There's a key word in the question. And I had a lot of Latin already because it was easy for me and I got a lot of credits for being able to do that. And, and I would just do that. You know. I'd look down through the possible answers and see if there's anything that matched the key word. And that's how I skated through this wow. thing in 45 minutes and went home. After lunch, I went back and did another test, the same thing, different tests. And the tops of the test had been cut off with scissors. I could tell cuz it was an uneven cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they could have used one of those paper cutter things, but nevertheless, you know, my curiosity was, "Hmm, what is this? What's the origin of this?" And I did that test and it took me 40 minutes. And then the next uh, morning I got up and I went out and did the third test which took me 20 minutes because eventually they're asking some of the same questions mm-hmm. and there was some information that I wasn't supposed to know, but it was easy for me to break down the sense, and then with Latin, try to break down the words that could be the answer. And uh, the next morning after that, my aunt came in the room, and with a very angry tone of voice, get up now and go out to the college, Dr. Thompson's office. I was not into being ordered around. Things had gone really bad in this school for me, so ordering me around was not the right idea. My hackles were up when I went to Dean Thompson's office, and um, he wanted to know why I cheated. And I blew apart like a frag grenade right in front of him, and uh, he realized, "Oops, <laughs> we have a psychological <laughs> problem with this kid." But and I said, "Cheat? How could I cheat? I never knew what I, what I was. Gonna, you know, I couldn't cheat." And he finally that got through his head. He said, "But you're not supposed to get them all right. That's taught me. I got them all right. That absolutely blew my mind. I didn't realize until I I wrote a story about myself. I wrote a memoir, and I went back to that school and learned that I was an A student. Mm-hmm. I was a four point student the whole time." Mm-hmm. I was just beaten up by the the faculty and the other kids. So uh, that's how I got into the, and I started as a sophomore. I didn't complete my junior year in high school, didn't do my senior year, didn't do my freshman year in college, I had to get a a general education uh, diploma, GED. Mm-hmm. And I got it from an all-girls boarding school in <laughs> Omaha called Brownell Hall. It was great. Back in Omaha now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm at the college. Yeah. I started as a sophomore. I'm yeah. graduating from all-girls boarding school. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Sweet revenge. Huh? Right. And um, oh, and boy, I told them how to blow things up, how to blow fire. <laughs> I, it was how to shrink pennies to right, right. in nitric acid. Anyway, <laughs> uh, at the school, there was a drama department and I started performing in the plays. In the musicals we did actual music we had an mm-hmm. orchestra pit and the whole thing it was quite wow. remarkable for a municipal college and i just continued on doing that and i started doing stuff and i i realized i was connecting with the audience and that was a great feeling and one day One of the plays we uh, did was Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which is a fabulous play to do at a school, especially. Mm -hmm. And Breaking the Fourth Wall is a very interesting concept, (laughs) which I wasn't quite sure of yet because I had never had a conversation with my dad. Right. And uh, (laughs) I played the drunken choir master. And the way we had it uh, laid out was typically the way it's staged, but the orchestra pit had a thrust out over it with chairs, during the scene, you know, people go around and, and get the scenes right and dressed in black clothing for the real play, the Thornton Wilders play. And all the chairs were facing in. And I'm the drunken choir master, so I'm right up next to the stage facing right out of the audience, playing a drunk. And as I'm starting to do my stuff, I hear this whisper from the audience, Oh, my God, poor Harriet. He's drunk. Great. I knew who it was. Um, and I finished the play thinking that was, somebody thought I was drunk. That's remarkable. That's just so cool. I love this. Went home and my aunt was waiting for me on the stairs, something she had never done before mm-hmm. so I was curious because it was late at night and very middle western uh, folks, mm-hmm. they slept in single beds and they were in bed and sleep right. way earlier than I. I was just insomniac. But uh, as I walked in there was my aunt she said, are you all right i said yeah <laughs> why i i have you 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 haven't been drinking now you i said no i'm 17 oh I mean, you're sure you're all right and then it, bang it clinged. i said oh i know what Mitch Sample called you and told you I was drunk on stage. <laughs> she said, how did you know? I said, I heard her whisper. <laughs> well, <are> you upset? <laughs> are you kidding me, Harriet? This is terrific. That's great, yeah. Somebody really believed, I was, and that hooked me. That's great,
0: yeah, best feedback you can
1: then get. Then I went to Summerstock, I, I worked in Summerstock for two years, and I got an agent through doing a Studs turkle play, mm-hmm. it was in, and the idea of doing any show is if you are able to originate the character, and yeah. not be held up against somebody else's mm-hmm. performance. So this was an original play by Studs called Amazing Grace. I got the male ingenue, and uh, I got an agent.
0: And that's that's how you go to Broadway? That's how I go to Broadway. And, and first of all, before I ask you about that, when's the first time Henry Fonda saw you perform?
1: He, without my knowing it, came in to watch me perform in Harvey, the interesting part about Harvey was I was playing the part that my Uncle Jimmy, yeah. my godfather Jimmy Stewart, uh, had played on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And he was a lot older than I. I was 19. And um, I had the white rabbit. But some things happened to me that I really don't, I, well, I can say it. I saw that bloody rabbit. Not on stage with me, but I saw it off stage. Mm-hmm. And it was frightening to me, but I would go on and do the performance. It's a very funny show. And I didn't know my dad was there until after the show. And he came to me and he said, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with what you did. And know, I'd already seen him in Mr. Roberts. I'd seen him in, in, in plenty of shows on stage and plenty of movies. Now knew what he did and why I was known as Henry Fonda's mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, most young people who play older people overemphasize their olderness by being infirm and shaking too damn much. And you just played for the jokes. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's great. You know, great. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering why they cast me to begin with. They put silver in my hair. Yeah,
0: you know? but that's high. That's high praise from Henry Fonda, right? Yeah,
1: from Colonel Thursday. From Right.
0: <laughs> so, what happened with with Blood, Sweat, and, and Stanley Pool that? Uh, was such a hit that you win the Drama Critics Award. You um, and I guess is that really what led to the beginning of movies for you, or was it, was it less direct connection than that? A little less. Yeah.
1: Um, it was an amazing play, Blood, Sweat, and Stanley mm-hmm. Pool. Darren McGavin was the star, but um, I was on stage more than he was. Mm-hmm. And the two minutes at the opening of the show, I'm not on stage, but they're talking about my character. Yeah. And I have to come on stage totally scared. I'm playing Robert Oglethorpe, a fellow who cannot carry through with the, uh, the bayonet drill, uh, stabbing a dummy and kill, 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 I was, that was This play was written by William and James Goldman. Mm-hmm. These two brothers don't talk to themselves, so they're each other. Really, But they mm-hmm. did then. Yeah. And uh, I had to do the full manual arms with a Garand rifle, a real one, with a real bayonet at the end. <laughs> At the time, I, it was at the end of the show when this happens, mm-hmm. this, this display of expertise with a rifle, mm-hmm. I owned that stage. Coming on, I was so scared because this is my first time and the critics are out there and there's too many fondness on stage. There's Henry, Jane, and Peter. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always said after that, you know the, the phrase, three men on a match is unlucky? Mm-hmm. Do you know where it comes from? Mm-hmm. First World War. The sniper sees the match get struck. The second person taking the cigarette light from that match, that person gets the range. The third person gets the bullet. Mm-hmm. So there's Henry and Jane, and Peter is what? Am I doing to you? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I just love doing figures. that. It's yeah. just one no, of those, it's great. It's a, a great I never art heard, thing for it's me. It's great, and I'd
0: never heard that that explanation. You know, but. Um, Okay. And so, I did, oh, yeah.
1: Sorry. I did a show. That I, I was called by Monique James, my agent. We said we want you to to do this show. It's a naked city. I knew about the show, um, and I said, Monique, I'm on Broadway. I have eight shows a week. Yeah. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> no, no, they'll shoot around your schedule, Monique. I don't have a schedule. Yes. I'm shooting. I'm on Broadway doing a play, eight shows a week. And they'll shoot and they'll pay you a thousand dollars. What? <laughs> that was it. Uh-huh. They'll pay me $1,000. I was making $295 uh, on the uh, play. Sure. Yeah, and I yeah. thought that was all the money in the world. Yeah. So suddenly I liked this new idea, and then I came out here to find and more of that California gold. Well,
0: so that first uh, project was what? That, what was the title of uh, that? that?
1: That was uh, Naked City, and it was okay. called the, S- the Night the
0: Saints Lost Their Halos. Okay. and It was me and Martin Sheen. Wow. And, and it wasn't that long before you hooked up with roger corman right and so is that it was, right there was a while it was a while yeah How, i've got to ask you about that though because i've interviewed him i read about him i think it's fascinating because he's sort of like unknown to the general public but everybody in the movies reveres this guy and i yeah. wonder how'd you come to him and what was the value of working with him for you uh, I was sent to be
1: interviewed at, by him at Fox. He was making, I think it was the Valentine's Day Massacre, oh, St. Valentine's Massacre. Be, yeah. And um, he received me in his office. And I, you know, by this time um, had enjoyed more of the fruits of the herb, <laughs> and uh, I was also a rock and roller. You know, I was in the scene, in the music, because that's where it all was. So I came in with these wild shades that uh, Brian Jones had given me. That these little mirrored things on the top—they were octagonal things—and and, and uh, uh, jeans and uh, this. A suede jacket that was made to look, I had made looking look exactly like a Levi jacket, mm-hmm. but it was suede, and a big badge, uh, a, a naval intelligence badge on my chest. I don't know why. I <laughs> just, you know, why not mess with Red, Roger's Red. mind? And I'd really not known Roger that well, I'd seen some of his films. And I'd met Jack Nicholson and, and so forth. And he was already with Roger. Yeah, he had already worked. And I, I knew um, some other people that had come through the Corman Inst- mm-hmm. Institute, or University mm-hmm. of Corman, we call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Roger said, nah, I'm gonna make a movie about the Hells Angels, but I'm not gonna make a statement movie. <laughs> I gave it about a count of 15, <laughs> liking the idea of dragging him out. Because he's still smiling. He's holding the smile, he's mm-hmm. holding the smile. He's Roger, if you make a film about the Hell's Angels, it is a statement mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. You cannot not make a statement film. Yeah, do you know how to ride motorcycles? Oh, you bet. And that was it.
0: And you had already you, you had already uh, had experience with motorcycles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, stepping out for a second from the Corman, because I want to talk about the trip there. But what? Had, where did motorcycle that that was a rebellion thing against Henry Fonda, right? Not against Henry Fonda, just against the establishment. The establishment. Okay. What is the appeal for somebody like me who hasn't had the guts to necessarily sit on a motorcycle yet? Uh, I've done mopeds and things. You're young, son. What, what is it that? What do you feel that when you get on a motorcycle? Why do you? Why do you? Because uh, you, to this day, people may think, oh, it was just for Easy Rider. No, you are a true. Mm-hmm. Man of the motorcycle.
1: Long distance riding yeah. was my, whenever I'd get a little bit too balled up with the insecurities or stuff that doesn't want to be dealt with or I don't want to deal with, i jump on that motorcycle and go ride for two three days. I mean, away. It's freedom. So that's where It, <laughs> it was uh, a sense of freedom and being my own master and realizing this is dangerous, mm-hmm. so I have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, you know, I used to make pilgrimages to Sturgis, which is uh, a motorcycle meeting in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. I even rode east to Laconia, which is the oldest, oldest motorcycle rally in the United States, from here uh, to New Hampshire. Wow,
0: wow. <laughs> you're not missing anything. So, when it, when it came to the Wild Angels, and I guess, less, it wasn't, well, Oh.
1: I, no, I hadn't been riding Harleys in, before the Wild Angels. Uh-huh. I had ridden BSAs and,
0: uh, and BMWs yeah. and Triumphs. So you, get, you do the Wild Angels, though, and, and that, was your, that sort of put you on the map, right, for movies?
1: Truthfully, what it did for me is yeah. save my life. Because my agents wanted me to be the next Dean Jones at Disney Studios. <laughs> there was that I a possibility? Had, they thought. They thought. And uh, that was the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. Although I, I liked watching the space uh, cat from outer space and so forth. I liked it because the cat was an Abyssinian. I love them. But, you know, I didn't see that as what I really wanted to do. Just a little moments ago, I saw Norman Lloyd. Yes. And he's 100 years old. That's awesome. And he's in awesome fucking mm-hmm. shape. hmm And uh, thank God this is not a yeah. lie. Yeah, you but say whatever good. you want. Uh, and... I came up and introduced myself to him again because I'd worked with him in an Alfred Hitchcock hour. Oh, wow. And it was a really cool show. And he said, It's my favorite of the Hitchcock shows. And that was a good way for young actors then to get uh, breaking into uh, the theater of camera, Yeah, Yeah, yeah. how to work with the camera. You didn't have to waste the money of a big motion picture shoot TV. it was a television you yeah. could learn and it was always working in the, the uh naked city i was working with some of the greater character acts joe van fleet george vushkevek these are yeah. and um i can't remember the director's name but at any rate there were some good actors and i was learning from there were great actors on the stage at mm-hmm. what i was learning from them actors from the yiddish theater in new york who yeah. just were like giving giving, mm-hmm. giving. it was mm-hmm. fabulous mm-hmm. um And it was like, I felt very comfortable on the motorcycle already, so when I got on this much bigger machine, I already knew what to do, I just had to ride it around the block. And uh, I was ready to roll, and I was being free, making that movie. My father, (laughs) he couldn't come to see that show because he was on, on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And we opened it in New York at a, a big special screening for a lot of distributors and exhibitors, AIP. Mm-hmm. And as I walked out of that screening, one of the old fans that I'd had outside the stage door of Blood, Sweat, and Stanley Pool. Could be there giving me Christmas gifts, wanting my autograph and all this, was outside that with an umbrella hitting me. How could you play that Nazi again? Right.
0: Believe it, it was just an act it and was then me as an actor. Just the year after that is, is the trip with is that your first collaboration with Nicholson, right? Yeah. And to be uh, you know, not your first experience with drugs, but you know, as oh. a but uh <laughs> Again, it sort of must have been a kind of a on a metal level, even kind of neat to be. Um, this whole LSD scene, this was the 60s, right? This was Jack's script yeah. was yeah. brilliant. Mm-hmm.
1: He did the whole thing about the miasma of, of the visions of what you mm-hmm. see on that drug in editorial concept, cutting back and forth, rapid cutting. And uh, Roger didn't shoot. Jack's script mm-hmm. in that manner and it was unfortunate because he bowed to the what you see when you go to the film war and watch them project these things on the screen and lava lamps and all that stuff. That's not what an experience on LSD yeah. is. And I felt cheated by that but nevertheless they paid me a lot and I went out and promoted that film and it was during the promotion of the trip that I came up with the idea for Easy Rider.
0: Well you you did this perfectly, for you teed it up perfectly. so. What I've heard different accounts. I heard you had a dream. I heard you were at a Toronto convention when you were signing. Still, I've heard different things. How did? Where did Easy Rider come from? When? How did that come about?
1: I was in Toronto, and you know I know about Toronto because I don't pronounce the last T. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, at the Lakeshore Motel, which was pretty seedy then. <laughs> and uh, i was in the red flocked room and i thought that's the hooker's room so whenever i'd go in it, i'd throw the locks of the door wouldn't close just in <laughs> case right always looking for some touch yeah and uh, i had been at this big luncheon in this huge auditorium with about 1265 people most of them exhibitors and and distributors there and we were at the aip table uh and uh, the new guy on the block happened to be Jack Valenti, who was appointed to the uh, Motion Picture Association of America, which is actually not a really <laughs> important group in the world. <laughs> Nevertheless, maybe more now, right. but not then. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jack got up and said, my friends, and you are my friends, I have it on tape, and I can't it take too much time mm-hmm. for me to tell you okay. how, why yeah, I yeah. was taping. Um, and he said it twice, like, I have it on tape, I know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my friends, you are my friends. It's time we stop making movies about motorcycles. And he started sounding like a TV event. Sex and drugs. <laughs> Looking right at me down yeah. the floor. Oh, I thought, yeah. whoa. <laughs> so that was my lesson, going back to the Lakeshore Motel to my red flock room. Yeah. No motorcycles, no sex, no drugs, movies. Wow. All righty. <laughs> now I have all these photographs to sign, and they're 8x10, black and whites. And I'm signing them away. This guy owns three theaters. He's got four daughters. He owns 50 theaters. Mm-hmm. He's got two daughters, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And up came a, a, an 8x10 of me and Bruce Dern on my motorcycle, and he's, I'm packing him behind me. And I'm riding on this cement path in Venice. But in the f- film, it looks like I'm riding on the sand. It was quite interesting. But, of course, there was a lot of backlight. Mm-hmm. So what you see mm-hmm. is all silhouette. Richard Moore was the cinematographer. Richard Moore was one of the yeah. founders of Panavision, and that was cool. Um, and I'd never worked in, in, in Panavision mm-hmm. before, so that was also anamorphic. It was an interesting mm-hmm. way for me to f- figure out about that. But he might have remembered. The still men who took the photograph might have remembered. Definitely, Roger would never have remembered. Yeah. And we are... the. Uh, you little thing you can't see what i'm doing because you don't have eyes <laughs> you, you don't have right. even digital eyes right um it was we were just a little over two inches big in the middle of this eight by ten picture totally silhouetted you oh. could not see me so what do i say best wishes peter fonda where is he <laughs> and i'm looking at this right. thinking who in marketing right pulled this still for me to sign right. this is idiotic mm-hmm. and suddenly whoa that's what it is. It's not about a 100 Hells Angels on their way to a Hells Angels funeral. It's about two guys riding across. John Fords West, yeah, right. John Fords West, are going. we're going east. Great, an homage to Herman Hesse. Great, the journey to the east. This is wonderful, and I just started barrel rolling through this story. I got to the end first, and I thought, this is what's going to happen. And then I backed up to make that happening work. And then basically in four hours, uh, our three hours, three and a half hours, I had written or I had put into my yeah. brain pan. I didn't have to write things down. I don't today, yeah. obviously. You know, yeah. I'm into details. Yeah, no. It I, I got that, picked up the phone, called Dennis Hopper up. And this is like 4 in the morning? This is 4.30 in the morning, T.O. time. <laughs> and so one thirty in the morning, L.A. Yeah. time. And uh, his wife, who was, was like my oldest sister, mm-hmm. Brooke, answered the phone. I said, "Is Dennis there?" Yeah, he's asleep. Wake him up. Are you sure? I said, "Yeah. Are you? Uh, do you want to get out of the room?" <laughs> he said, "No, no, I'll, I'll right. get him." It, it's Peter. Wake up. He answered the phone. I said, "Listen to this." Told him the story. He said, "What, what, do, you, what do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, uh, I figured uh, you direct, I produce. We'll both write and act in it. We can save some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know." And we could do this, and this will this will be commercial, because I knew this would shake the cage, right? And I also understood what Jack Valenti had said. Wow, fill it with motorcycles yeah. and <laughs> trucks. <laughs> uh, says, oh, man, that's great. Uh, and I said, y- you want me to direct it? And I said, yeah, you, you know, you've got the intensity. You've got the desire. You understand framing better than I do. You understand forming substance. Yes, of course you're going to direct it. Oh, man, I'm sure glad you called because I was never going to talk to you again. <laughs> wow. I haven't got time to understand yeah, to right. get into why. Right, that right, was, okay, sure. He had f- fled my house several weeks earlier. I'm never going to talk <laughs> to you again.
0: You're a right, right. <sighs> and, and two must ask, where did the money come from and how did Jack come to it? Well, uh, the, mo- the money came,
1: interestingly enough, uh, we first were with AIP, with uh-huh. Sam Arcoff, yeah, yeah. and, and they want to know, could we not use cocaine? Could we do uh, <laughs> marijuana? I said, well, we'd have to have a couple of tractor trailers to get $50,000 of marijuana. Uh, well, what about hashish? And I thought, these guys are really wacky. <laughs> uh, yeah, we could, but it's, it's not that. You know, it has to be this. We can't do that because it's too much of a moral problem for the audience. It's too much of a moral climb for them to make it the front of the film. I already knew about that. It wasn't that. And when they got to the top of that, if they're going to stick with us that long, it's the next slide down there that's going to take them to the end where I suffice the laws of the f- motion picture industry that people doing bad things, such as smuggling a drug, and we didn't say it was cocaine. It was a white, it could have been China white, <laughs> heroin. Right. And um, and. This is going to be so bad, but we will get killed at the end, which satisfies
0: <laughs> MPAA. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but right. they'll never know that it was anything to do with the cocaine thing at the top. And you guys really did kill the uh, MPAA. That was the, You guys are the first nail in the coffin of them and Midnight Cowboy and things as well, but you guys were... I
1: actually started a little
0: bit with the whole... Oh, Bonnie and Clyde, maybe?
1: Thing. No, I, I started with the thing, the Young Lovers, with uh, uh, Samuel Goldwyn Jr., who was directing... And uh, Sharon Hugh and I had a bed scene to do. Hugh and he, we were in this big bed and we had to put a, a foot on the floor. This is the yeah, first right. bedtime, I, uh, bed scene I'm gonna do on film. And this is odd, cause it's such a big bed. <laughs> How is Sharon gonna get her foot in this? And that had to be. Cause that's the code. And we're, That was the code. Mm-hmm. And I'm going on and I'm thinking, okay. what? Uh, finally, with my own braggadocia attitude about camera, I said, "Does camera see my foot on the floor? No. Do you see that my leg's even heading towards the floor, out of the bed? No. In other words, you're cutting from breasts up. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't see this. Yeah. So nobody sees this. Right. Yes. Well, Sam, who are we doing this for if nobody sees it? Who? Do we have? Is somebody on the set from the MPA or the the code that's going to report us for doing this? Right. No. Screw it. Or, forget the floor we're doing it and Sam just went for it and that was the first
0: one I broke and I broke and many more and 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 just to come back with Jack how did Jack come to join you guys you and Dennis and you need your third uh, where did how did you
1: we had rip Torn first oh really and then um, and rip Torn was all for doing it because I would tell the story you see I would tell the story to everybody we hadn't written anything down it was me always telling the story I asked Dennis to tell it once and he froze up on the mic literally beads of sweat dropping <laughs> off his and Terry Southerns in the room and this kid that Terry brought I think he brought that person f- to hear the story for the first so I'd have somebody new to tell the story to didn't know what I was going to pull a uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder with ja- with uh, Dennis couldn't do it but he wanted Rip and I told the story to every actor that we wanted to have in and they were all for it mm-hmm. everybody was wanted to be a part of this act and uh, Rip called me while we were in New York after shooting the stuff in Mar- in. uh uh, new orleans rip called me and i was at my father's house and said you know i i can't do this for scale i said rip everybody was doing percent, it for scale yeah. except me he said well i'll take your deal no no i don't think you want my deal yeah i'll take your deal i said rip i'm not going to pay myself anything i know i have to pay uh, a check has to be cut to me uh, according to sag rules i'm going to give it back to my company well, why are you going to do that so, okay, someplace down the line, this is all going to come unsnapped because of money, and at that time I'll be able to stand up and say, "Well, there's no flies on my shit." <laughs> <laughs> and, I was, and so that led so to that. You know, I, I immediately when Sony bought Columbia, I thought, "So those guys are going to read the contract. What means fries on ship?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> rate, and Jack was willing to do it. For
1: no, yeah, and, and he, I, I had to call the uh, bird and say, I, uh, "We've lost Rip. Well, who do you want?" I said, "Jack uh, Nicholson." But I don't think Dennis is going to want a jack. He said, "Well, let's see. Just, just don't say anything yet." I said, "I won't. I won't." And I went back and started working with Dennis and Terry. And um, finally, I, I had to leave and come back to, to L.A. And at that time, I got more serious with um, with Bert Schneider, the man who gave me the monk. The, the, he had the. He and Bob Rafelson had the monkeys. So monkey money made Easy Rider because they had so much cash they could afford to lend me right. three
0: hundred sixty thousand bucks. And that's what it was. Wow. Yeah. To what extent were you playing yourself an easy rider? Because I know we've talked about you were a biker in a sense. You were a kind of a hippie, I guess. Would I was be a motorcyclist. A motorcyclist. That's what I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean it in a direct. But and then, but even there are scenes like I've heard people talk about the scene with you and the Madonna where Hopper's asking you to get very personal, and I don't know if that were you. Were you, did you feel you were playing yourself? Were you comfortable with if you were playing yourself? What was that?
1: That particular moment, you know, he was asking me to play myself. You have to remember this starts September 27th, 1967. Mm -hmm. And that scene was in uh, February 23rd, 1968, which happened to be my birthday. My birthday was a Friday and this happened to be a Friday. And we started shooting exactly the time I was born in New York. It was LA, it was, 11-7 in New Orleans, which made it 12-7 at noon in New York, and that's when I was born. Mm -hmm. I did not know that until I finished that day's shooting. Um, I played myself as this character because I initiated the character way back in September 27th. Mm -hmm. And um, each time I told the story, I saw myself. So I was inhabiting this character long before ever there was a camera on me. Mm-hmm. And I, qu- quoting uh, Gary Cooper who said, if I know what I'm doing, I don't have to act. I knew everything I wanted to do because it was all here in my head. Mm-hmm. Every bit of, every minutia of the story was in my head. Um, and it, I just, I, I played that character. It wasn't me, I'm, a, I'm a, a much more gregarious person as you can see. And yet I'm in this totally enigmatic person in this film. Mm-hmm. and I got those glasses on I didn't need glasses in those days because there was just enough color to make you know you can't get all the way in and it was the japanese who figured that out because they did a book about me as an actor and it had all these things and then there was stories in this one about that there was a line drawing of my face and these glasses with
0: no <laughs> Now, before the film came out what was your honest expectation of what it was going to how it would do and then what was your reaction when you saw you know could you believe when it did it as well as, as it did.
1: Before we ever started making, it, I knew it was going to make uh, a shooting. I knew it was going to make money mm-hmm. after we shot the first week. I wasn't so sure because Dennis had gone so nuts, <laughs> but you know, we all got it together and, and we shot the rest of it out. And you know, thank you, Dennis, because you did what you promised you'd do for me. And he did very well. And I thought, this is good. This is this looks good on film. We're looking at it, and it's pretty cool. This will make money. This will earn us the ability to make the second film. That was the reason for Easy Rider was to get a track record of success so we can make more movies. No, I did not have an idea that it would go as big as it did in the world. I didn't understand that part, but I did know that I had an audience already for Wild Angels. They're going to see it, so that's a sure hit. And for
0: people, uh, like myself who were not there in the sixties to, to see how this, how this went over. Can you characterize, you know, how it changed Hollywood? Cause it's certainly people made movies differently after that. And also how, uh, It changed your career more specifically, you know, what happened in the years immediately after Easy Rider?
1: Well, it certainly put a nail in the coffin of the Dean Jones of, uh, the next Dean Jones for (laughs) Disney, which I thought I had accomplished with the Wild Angels and then the Treb, but you know, you're never sure. But this was a a big hit. Uh, I did not know about changing the way Hollywood worked. I just realized they're not using the things that we can use and they do not know this audience exists. I know it exists. I'm part of that audience. Describe that audience. What was well, that? Well, you know, they were making audience films, uh, Pillow Talk and Glass Bottom Boat, and that's, you know, Gidget, that's not a kid's film. Beach Blanket Bingo, that's, you know, come on. Those are not real films of the, of the youth that I had grown into and up with, of this shutting away the establishment, going on their own. You know, I can now say I knew that we had our own language. Fracturing English, we had our own poetry, we had our own music and songs, we had our own books, we had our own clothes, our costumes, we had everything. You know what? We don't have our movie, do we? Now I'm telling you this, and I could have told you this you know, many years ago, but not before I made that movie. I realized afterwards, and seeing the re- response from the people, that we made a movie for these people that didn't have
0: their own movie. And then... Inspired a lot of other people to do the same and then you yourself for your directorial debut this was another one right of these youth targeted movies Hired Hand would have to be right
1: well youth no you don't uh, no it, it it was poorly released by Universal but it was an incredibly uh, different western and uh, it wasn't you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the audience wanted to see me riding a horse and smoking a, or riding a bike and smoking a joint, and I wasn't going to be doing that, you know. Forever. I didn't. Uh, it, it was totally a different type of film. I'm very proud of that film. Uh, I got it back in 2001. And for twelve years, was producing it, letting it go out to theaters, having it re-reviewed, which is very often not done by critics. Stanley Kaufman re-reviewed. He gave it a great review yeah. when it came out in seventy-one. In his re-review at the end, he gave it a great review again. He said, "I'm so glad I got to see it again. There was so much I missed the first time." That's great. What does more yeah, right yeah, going really? to say?
0: So. And and with the third must have been the third of your three that you directed, Wanda Nevada must have been on a personal level, extra special to be able to, even if it was just for a day or whatever it may have been, to direct It was one day fun. and direct my dad and had it that act come? in the scene with him, which he thought I was totally nuts.
1: Up to that moment he thought I was a loose cannon on the deck, or maybe a loose grenade around with the pen pulled yeah. and the spoon dropped. But he had to work with me and my crew, and we had seventy eight people, you know, working on the crew and he wrote me a letter, and at the end of it, he said in my 41 years, it was a wonderful letter, probably the fifth he he'd ever written to me, in my um, 41 years of making motion pictures, I've never seen a director so adored by the, the crew, and you're a very good director, son. And please remember me in your company. That's I want to be a part of your company, which is
0: incredible. Wow. He was dying when he made that film. Well, and that's begs, that begs the, the question for me, that you know Jane often talks about how on Golden Pond offered her some sense of closure with him because she played out what she she heard what she had to hear that's my sense did you ever get that yourself that sense of closure much better better
1: I decided after that letter that I wanted to hear him say I love you very much son and over the phone from my ranch in Montana I called him one day and I said look uh, you know, Dad, the clock is running for you, and there are no timeouts. I don't like it when you talk like that, son. I said, you watch basketball, you know what that means. The clock's running, no timeouts. That's what's happening. and But I'm not going to let you leave this stage until you learn how to say, I love you very much, son. <laughs> and he hung up the phone. Two days later, I call him again. I don't do the preamble about, you can. I just go on and talk about this, that, the other thing, and then say, I love you very much, and hung up. On the fifth call, he spit out as fast as he could, I love you, son. (laughs) And the director, I said, no, no, Dad, um, you don't say it as a response of what I've said. It's not I love you too. It originates in you. You say, I love you, son. I love you very much is what we're going for here. You don't have to do it today. We'll do this again like a director, <laughs> we won't do this today, we'll, we'll do it tomorrow. And finally he would beat me, saying to him, I love you very much, Dad. And he would not use the word to. It is a statement of effect, not a response. And that's what I was after. The night that he died, we were all in his, his hospital room. His wife, Shirley, Jane, Tom Hayden, who I call the pro- the commie prevert. <laughs> um, <laughs> he hit my sister. He's lucky he's fucking alive. Wow. Uh, having said that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, he was. He had his big blue eyes doing this, like a drunk trying to figure what side of the path to walk down. Yeah. Looked at Shirley. Looked at Jane. Looked at Tom. Looked at me. Both eyes open. I want you to know, son, I love you very much. Laid down his head and never regained consciousness. Wow! That's closure.
0: That's fantastic. I'm happy for you that you had that. And then, as you the last, as the last uh, thing, because I think that's. That's hard to, to, hard to say on that. Beyond that. <laughs> I just, and
1: this has got nothing to do with Turner Classic movies. I love it.
0: No, well, it's all it's the you know Henry what? Fonda. That's I, what it does. It God does. God you're bless, here to
1: talk about Henry God bless Ted for starting this whole thing. That's right. That's I love right. Ted. I He's my favorite brother-in-law. You right. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the last thing is just that, obviously, we spent a lot of time on uh, Easy Rider, and I know a lot of people probably do that, but there's a lot of other great movies. The one, though, that if there's one other one that I would guess you're especially proud of and i do think it ties back in with henry fonda again because in i my guess i don't know you it seemed like almost an homage to that kind of a character was yuli's gold right i mean what and to have and also for that to be the movie that brings you
1: the my ultimate second th- nomination <laughs> right i
0: mean what an, a sign of acceptance from an industry that sometimes puts you in a box where this is the guy on the motorcycle this right. is what so i just have to ask was Yulie's gold in fact sort of a homage to Henry Fonda, and how much did its success independent of Henry Fonda or any other? you know you, you for you as an individual, it must have been uh, nice to be uh, get that kind of. Uh, Yulie's
1: gold, yeah. was the most fun I have ever had making a movie. And I've made some good movies and I made a pile of bad ones. I don't mind the pay. Um, and I learned from my father we are known as journeyman actors uh it was such a beautiful film beautifully written i knew it when i finished the script and i didn't know if i'd get the part but i knew i was the part and and th- after that, I did also The Limey, which was a pretty interesting film, too. Mm-hmm. But that was, Yuli's Gold was the most fun I've ever had. I was not channeling my dad. I never even thought about him. It's just the glasses that I was wearing, which had my reading prescription in them, by the way, which means you would be blasted. You would look like Mary Cassatt painting to me. <laughs> uh, because he wore those glasses, those wire rim glasses, in, uh, on Golden Pond. And I think that's where the critics and people talking about it, I get that idea. I'm not ashamed of that. And that's kind of cool in a way. But I never thought about my dad making it. And it would have been terrible had I thought, damn it, dad won't be able to see this. I'd already, with that closure, you don't go into those areas. It It just happened that other people identified me. I look much more like my mom than I do my dad, a lot more like my mom. My sister looks more like our dad than I do. I have the, the chin like he does and so forth, even the deviated septum on the same, <laughs> same side of my nose. But um, yeah, you know, it's too bad that he didn't get to see that, or maybe he did through me, I don't know. But that was indeed the finest time I had. Making the film hadn't, well, that's not true. I did have an idea when I had finished the script in my log house in Montana, on my ranch, I closed it, I was in tears, I closed the script, I looked up the ceiling, and I said, I'd like to thank the members of the Academy. <laughs>
0: so you knew right away.
1: My now ex-wife said, don't you ever say that in public.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. It's so fucking cool. Well, and there may be a chance yet to, to do that. Doesn't so, matter. Anyway. Twice right. times. I mean, Jeff
1: Ridges was nominated four or five right. times before he got his. Right. What the heck? Right. <laughs>
0: well, thank you so much. It's I really been my appreciate pleasure. it. Really, thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. All of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wigler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry?
1: Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire,
0: huh? Ah. Oh.
1: 18 plus.